0: Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita-affiliated tribes, which was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. And my guest today, who I'm extremely excited to be in conversation with and we'll introduce in a second, is recording from the lands that are held in stewardship by the peoples and communities of the Northern Cheyenne, Northern Arapaho, and Southern Cheyenne. My guest today, Sophia Sarantakos, is a licensed clinical social worker and researcher whose work aims to facilitate the reduction of the size, scope, and power of the prison industrial complex. They worked as a social practitioner for 10 years. Dr. Sarantaco's current research focuses on contributing to the advancement of community-based approaches to harm and need, as well as exploring the future of social change work. They're questioning how the profession of social work can directly and effectively connect the work of large scale social movements and advance their aims. Thank you so much for uh, being in conversation today.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me, Alex. Yeah, it's a real honor to be talking with you today.
0: Good. I'm excited. So I want to start off in that in that intro bio you have, your work is dedicated to the reduction of the size, scope, and power of the prison industrial complex. Can you explain sort of the moral and the intellectual foundation that drives your work as a social worker and as an academic, how you arrived at that mission, so to speak?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think the moral and intellectual foundation for my work and movement in the world as a whole, they're, they're deeply intertwined. So, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, where life is precious, life is precious. And she means all life, not just an anthropocentric view of life. And so that's one of the key moral impulses that guides my work. And so I, the way that I understand the world is that the genesis and the current structure of the U.S. is indirect. direct opposition to a world where all life is viewed and held as precious. So I'm doing my part to build a world where life is unquestionably precious. And then one of the main frameworks that helped me guide my world building work is PIC abolition or prison industrial complex abolition, that framework. And it's a clear-eyed theory. It's a set of political commitments that helps really set the contours for my movement and questioning.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's so important that it's this political mission, it's this political thing that sets the framework for what you do. And often in conversations around professional, with professionals, with academics, they have a research question that sometimes is or is not connected to this worldview. So in connecting the work you do as an academic, as a social worker, with abolishing the PIC and making a world where life is precious, Why is it important for you and for others to conceive of their research agenda and their work as in service of something bigger, as in service of something bigger?
1: I love this question. Uh, (laughs) I love it because everything we do is already in service to something bigger. I think it just naturally is. So lots of researchers just aren't explicit about it, or they don't have clarity perhaps around the depth and scope of the implications of their work. And this is something I really struggle with in the academy is that there's no such thing for me as an objective researcher, right? We're all bringing our own experiences, our worldviews, our desires to the work that we're doing and who we are, who we deem worthy and unworthy of a thriving existence, what we want to be the future. All these things are kind of imbued In the questions we ask, the data we choose, the way we understand, interpret the data, right? So every bit of the process is so deeply political and in service of something, whether or not we explicitly say what it is. And so we can, like, our work can bolster the status quo or it can, you know, problematize it and offer a whole new way forward and and put us in right relationship with each other in the land. So. I, you know, whether we acknowledge it or not, our work is doing that. And I just happen to be really upfront and honest about the side that I'm on <laughs> and the horizon that I'm unwaveringly, like, unwaveringly moving toward, I think is, is the way that I would explain that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think in a way, it's very liberating to be upfront that like, you're right, like no, no work is objective. Whatever you're researching, whatever you're doing, it's not objective. And it sets you free in a sense to actually speak more truths to what you're researching.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I would agree with that.
0: I think for this conversation, sort of get into a lot of the work you've done as a social worker and how you're thinking about the profession and the work going forward. But I want to start with a kind of broad question, I guess, seemingly simple question, but I assume there's some nuance in there. Who is a social worker? What is a social worker?
1: This is such a good question. And I think it's being contested right now, particularly in our social work discourses. So I'll start off with saying there's a couple of pieces to this question. First is that I personally struggle with the term social worker because more often than not, people associate it with professionalized social work. So what I have been doing for a number of years now is I use the term social change work and social change worker just to kind of nod and include all the labor and laborers tied to changing our worlds, right? So that that includes Black Panther Party, Ida B. Wells, Du Bois, I mean, all these folks who are kind of organizing and thinking for for large-scale structural change. And I would actually even argue that it's the people and the work done outside of the profession that that have actually been moving the needle in real ways. I also think another important distinction is that the type of professionalized social work that's been uplifted and legitimized is what Jay Chun, J. Chun was the first president of the National Association of Black Social Workers. He made sure to say that, don't use the word mainstream social work, call it what it is, which is white social work. And so I've been really kind of focusing on that and making sure that I use that language because there's always been radical lineages of professionalized social work, largely led by people of color. But what's been amplified, legitimized, uplifted is white social work. I know it's a complicated answer, but I think social work and social workers are lots of different things, but I think we need to be really clear about the lineages we're discussing, Who was a part of that, what they've been working for, and where there was tension, because in so many of these radical lineages led by people of color, they were in direct opposition to white social work. And so they were working toward different things. So it's a a layered, complicated answer.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because when you, at least when I think of the history of social work, the first name that pops into my mind is Jane Addams, sort of this, this white savior in many ways, who used Uplift to create this progressive, and I use capital P progressive world. Has there been tension within professional social work or social work organizations between these more radical or non-academic or non-professional social work organizations? And sort of building off of that, who or what body legitimizes either professional social work or social change work?
1: Yeah. Regarding the first part, the tension between professionalized versus, versus non professionalized, I think there is tension in that people who are doing radical work that is outside the confines of the profession, frankly, don't care about the profession, right? Like they're not worried about what the profession is doing, how it's moving, because they're organizing and doing their own movement work in a way that matches their values and the world they want to see. So, but I think that social work, the tension comes largely, I think, from the side of the professionalized social work of wanting to kind of gatekeep and get their arms around all of the things that they think need to be under the umbrella of the profession. That's probably where most of the Tension is coming from, not, it doesn't come from both sides. And I also think that in terms of the, the legitimization, this is a big question that's happening right now. There's so much in flux in social work. But for me, I come from the camp of like whoever you let legitimize your social change work legitimizes it, right? Like that's up to you. And so even though, yes, I'm licensed and I'm part of the profession, I have the power to be accountable to whomever I believe I should be accountable to. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's always easy, right? Because like I'm in the academy and there are metrics for me to meet if i'd like to keep this paycheck as a form of survival in capitalism but i decide how i meet those metrics and to whom i'm accountable to while i'm executing the work to meet those metrics if that makes sense so i think a lot of folks in the profession particularly white folks just like white folks out in the world look to state sanctioned bodies and kind of long held traditions to figure out you know what's legitimate and illegitimate more of us need to kind of push back and reevaluate where our allegiances are if we're going to really say that we're for social change.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's so important. And so within the academy, within your within your position training, I guess future professional social workers to work with social care workers, how do you prepare students to to support these social movements?
1: You know, I've been thinking and writing about this a lot. And I, one of the things that comes to mind for me is making sure that students don't feel like they're exceptional, right? You know, just because you've gotten into a graduate program and, you know, you're going to have potentially be licensed and do this work within these boundaries. Don't forget that you're a worker, <laughs> you're a community member and a fellow human, right? So the, the goal is, is not to kind of jump into communities and feel like you're an expert and can tell them what's happening and what's best for them, but that you take what you know, you take what you've learned, you bring it to others as an offering to help, you know, move the collective to something greater, healthier, more beautiful. And so, and I don't think even think that that's something that's kind of just related to social work. I think it's in most disciplines and professions, right? And as someone with a PhD, I can really fancy myself as someone who's an expert and can descend on communities and do these things. But I think if you have a really clear-eyed politics centered around solidarity, collective growth and movement, it prevents you from believing in that BS and, and viewing yourself as a laborer and a collective movement to do whatever's necessary to help us get to a better place. And that's one of the biggest things I try to pass on to my students. The other piece to that question about how to prepare students is that teaching them how needle the needle actually moves. And I think so much of what we teach in schools of social work is institutional change, the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Like you, punt, you you, work nine to five and you punch your card and you do this work at an agency. And we need to tell our students that the reality is that social movements, both domestically and internationally teach us that it comes from dissent, years of organizing, years of losses. And oftentimes, which a lot of people don't like to hear through violence, <laughs> right? Like that's how the needle moves. But it doesn't come from pulling levers within our existing institutions and structures. I'll I'll tack on to that kind of the piece of this disability organizer who's brilliant, Mia Mingus, who talks about like striking when the iron is cold, which is that you build in preparation, not just like in crisis. And I think that's a big issue with social work is that we step in when stuff's already happened. But how do we build in preparation for when this stuff happens? I think that's a big piece of it, too.
0: That answer offers so many different avenues to explore... But I want to go towards that sort of idea that change may not happen through the electoral process or through these traditional power brokers or through your classic nonprofit institutions. So you, you've you argued that social workers and social care workers should be subversive. They should break norms. They should break rules. Why? How? What does that achieve?
1: We should be thinking Critically about our work. And I I teach a I teach a foundation course, and it's one of the first classes that first year master students take right when they enter the program. I really make a mess of things for them intentionally because I think too many of us come into whatever profession or whatever field we feel like you know we want to be a part of, and we just adopt the mandates, the codes, the statutes, whatever, and we say, okay, well, this is how it is. And we do this in our in our lives, right? Like we just a lot of folks don't question the law, right? It is what it is. It's just the written law. <laughs> and so social work students come in and they say, okay, well, this is what it is. I have, to, I have to be a mandated reporter. I have to pull the trigger on this thing every time I come across something suspicious, Or right? And we should be questioning all of these things, all of these practices. What is the utility of these things? Are they, are they gatekeeping? Are they continuing to problematize and harm people? If so, it's not a good policy. It's not a good mandate. Right. And so we should always be thinking critically about all the things that we're told that we should be beholden to. And I really, really want my students to understand that. And I think it's very hard, particularly when you're kind of younger, just starting your career, perhaps in an entry level position. Right. To like go in and point out all the things that might be problematic and where where you're working. But the point is to have them have that lens and try to figure out how to organize in the workplace with their peers. And to be subversive, right, is like, I think about Adrienne Marie Brown's work of when she talks about, you know, how we are on the small scale is how we are at the large scale. So while, you know, I'm pairing it with the idea that, yes, we need to teach them about social movements and history and big change, but what you do on the day-to-day in your agency matters too. And so if there's a crappy policy that's causing harm, if there's, if there's a measure that is preventing certain people from gaining access to resources in your, in your agency... You need to critique that and you need to bring that to the attention of the agency and fight it. All of these things add up to important movement.
0: Yeah. And I I think you balance there very effectively these sort of like immediate material needs of the community with these larger strategies of rethinking policies. And I want to get into that question. But before that, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the logic that you just presented. Like, for can you use social workers, or I mean, even as a university employee, I'm a mandatory reporter. Can you go into the logic of how and why that might be problematic? And then broadening that out, how that represents the way the carceral state is so intertwined with both the practices of our everyday living, as well as the logic of our everyday professional living?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a social worker, Shannon Perez Darby, that created this really wonderful infographic around why mandatory reporting is not neutral and, you know, really just has a, a beautiful listing of how we should be problematizing this, this mandate. And, you know, we're trained as social workers that I think mandatory reporting is probably one of the biggest ones, right? You know, we teach social worker, well, it is, you know, we have immunity. So, um, don't worry about the back end, right? If you if the report that you have filed was made in good faith, but it turns out that there was no harm present, or no neglect or abuse, no big deal. You're you're immune, right? You made it in good faith. What I'm trying to and, and so many other kind of more more radical social workers are trying to get all of us to understand, is that that is so deeply harmful just on, from the outset to think that. We should just pull this trigger, and just because we're immune, we shouldn't think about how the ripple effect of those actions, right? And furthermore, the data that we have—mountains and mountains of data for decades—that show how, particularly, white social workers, like you know, when we think about family policing system and all the systems that we're engaged in, we're mainly targeting Black, Brown, and Indigenous families, right? More so than we are white families. Even still, even if there was neglect and harm present, we don't think about alternatives to how that can be addressed we just move to separation and harm, right? And what does it mean that that is like our natural impulse to just say, well, everything, we, we should just be ripping folks apart and separating families as opposed to thinking of alternatives and recognizing that there might be other more creative ways to address potential harms that have been made. So, you know, in, in that way, when we kind of pull triggers like mandated reporting so quickly without critical thinking and thinking of the ripple effect and how damaging it is, we are just acting as agents of the state. We're just another apparatus for the state to implement uh, racist policies and to kind of continue to harm marginalized families and communities. And so it's, it's so important for us to pause <laughs> and think about why we do the things that we do.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that, that pausing and rethinking our assumptions is so important, especially given these other professional code of ethics or guidelines by universities or. States or whoever it is, I know you're you're working within the. I'm going to get the name of the organization wrong, but I think the American Association of Social Work in the Prison Industrial Complex Abolition Work Group. And I know there's um, another abolitionist social work movement. Are there organizations within sort of the professional social work, such as yours, that are changing these assumptions that are that are making these conversations more material and perhaps shifting guidelines?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the ones you that you named are are strong, right? So there's the network to advance abolitionist social work that you mentioned. There's also I co-lead and co-facilitate the abolitionist social work special interest group, which is what we're we're building basically a collective within our largest social work conference of social workers across the spectrum, practitioners, academics, who are deeply committed to an abolitionist praxis across all substantive areas. And so we're here, we're here, we're out here, we're trying to push abolitionist praxis from the margins to the center and really try to, in whatever different ways that we can, build different containers, write different documents, write think pieces to try to help us understand and problematize all that we've done across history and continue to do. At least for me, I'll speak for myself, a lot of what I'm trying to think through is, you know, I've I've witnessed the way that the American Public Health Association I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the but the the movement they've made um, they put a statement out last fall in 2020 about how the field was adopting an abolitionist praxis and saying we can no longer sit on the sidelines and or or pretend that the solutions that we've been putting forth for years are actually helpful. We have too much data; it's a lie. Um, we have to have an abolitionist lens. That's what I want for the profession, and that's what so many of us want. And so we're trying to build of movement now where. You know, we're archiving our dissent <laughs> of the way the professions moved and we're, we're trying to push it in a new direction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that gets, gets to what you were speaking about earlier about who social workers are accountable to. They're accountable to the communities that they serve. And one of the ways your work is sort of framing where social work can move is using this, this framework of movement lawyering. Can you, before we get into that, just sort of describe what movement lawyering means? Maybe provide an example.
1: Yeah, so it's it's essentially when lawyers pair with mobilized communities, and we can get into you know what that definition looks like. What does it mean to be you know mobilized? But but pair with communities to just kind of offer their legal skill set.
0: to help advance
1: what it is that the community is trying to achieve. So it is it is not this kind of top-down descending hierarchical model of, you know, I'm just going to tell you what and it's also much more imaginative because it's 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 pushing the sites of struggle outside of the traditional courtroom and things where right where like law typically happens, right? And it's saying, look, we have a legal skill set, but we're going to just sit side by side with you, talk about what it is that you've experienced and want and need. And we'll figure out through perhaps a legal lens and whatever other resources and skills we have, how we can get you there. So that's kind of movement lawyering.
0: Yeah, I, and I think the way you describe that as pairing with uh, communities listening to this very clearly not coming in as an expert and going to the front of the room is such an important aspect of that. So, so what does that look like? What does that framework look like for social work?
1: For me, you know, and this is thing, these are things that I'm still thinking through, but I think, you know, things that come to mind are that we have to think outside of where the traditional sites of struggle are. And I think where we traditionally see that are the policy realms, agencies, you know, I'll use, I think, you know, in in a paper that I'm drafting right now, we're using the Chicago reparations ordinance, which is the first reparations ordinance that's ever happened in the country that happened in 2015. We're using that as an example of. Just how movement lawyers and mobilized communities paired to think so outside the box and achieve wins that were far outside of what we traditionally view as like the sites of struggle. So it wasn't just, you know, the survivors of the John Birch torture case getting money, right, from the city of Chicago, right? That that can happen in a, in a legal case and happen in the courtroom, and that decision can be handed down. But instead, they thought much bigger about cultural wins, right? What does it mean now that the ordinance says that? All of the Chicago public schools have to teach the John Burge torture case and, under, and have students understand all that John Burge did and all the horrors that happened to those men who were harmed for decades, right? So just thinking bigger about what are the wins that we can achieve and have them not be kind of constrained by institutions, agencies, you know, particular places where we are so used to action happening in the traditional sense.
0: Yeah, that's that's great that action happens in other places. And so thinking through that, I think you were very precise in using the word that these communities are mobilized. They're not marginalized, as I've heard a lot in these conversations. They're mobilized. So first of all, what what is the difference there? Why are these communities mobilized and not marginalized? And secondly, how does that help us sort of reframe or rethink what power is? where power lies and where where change happens.
1: I would characterize the differences that, you know, m- marginalized by definition doesn't mean powerless, but I think many researchers and people, particularly white folks, understand it this way, right? So these groups have been relegated to the margins and are therefore powerless, but which is not true. Mobilized, for me, immediately acknowledges the fact that marginalized people in communities are, and always have been, <laughs> creating ways to survive their abandonment. So they've always been in movement and in movement with each other. And so this, this for me, automatically sets a whole different baseline from, from which to think, right? So it kind of, you know, you mentioned white saviorism earlier. And I, I think that this reframe kind of pokes and prods at white saviorism and pushes us to think about how we enter communities, right? Particularly white folks, how we enter communities, why we think we belong there in the first place and why folks might, you know, want our help, if they, if, if they even do. And so I think I've actually, you know, Lilla Watson, the Aborigine um, artist, organizer, and academic, you know, she says this quote where she says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But you if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. Um, and I think that that's the shift, is that it pushes us to, to think of us as in solidarity, which is the truth, that we're kind of all we have is each other. <laughs> and it kind of pushes us to think in that way and enter spaces that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's so important. Just thinking through the connections between people. That even as an expert, like your liberation is bound up in everyone's. That uh, the quote I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher, but injustice anywhere is, is injustice everywhere. There's a better version of that quote if you Google it. I'm sure. Um, so thinking thinking through this. There's what you're describing in terms of this framework for social work and for pairing with communities. It sounds a lot like uh, ideas of mutual aid that have been presented. I know Dean Spade recently published a sort of handbook on what mutual aid is. So what is mutual aid and where does social work fit in as mutual aid? And then the third part of the question, just to just to make sure you can keep your thoughts straight is you mentioned earlier these social care work groups like uh, the Black Panther Party that I'd argue can be seen as, as early emblems of mutual aid. Do those provide a model? Um, where does that fit in with sort of professional and non-professional social work?
1: Simply as I would put it, it's, it's about helping people and communities who've experienced organized abandonment survive the present But it's also about deepening political education and deepening the understanding of who we're supposed to be mad at. And I'm gonna quote Tamara Nopper, who's a brilliant sociologist who says that, right? Part of the work is knowing whom we should be mad at. And I think there's not a lot of clarity around that in a lot of communities, particularly white communities. And so it's not just about surviving the present, but it's also about building networks and collectives and movements where we're actually restructuring our lives and the world and we're building towards something bigger. So it's a both and. Remind me of the next piece of that question.
0: <laughs> Where does, and I mean, you mentioned earlier sort of preparing students to deal with the next major major social event. Where does that fit in with working with mutual aid groups on the ground?
1: Again, this is something I'm really thinking through. There's this really unbelievable collective here in Denver. It's, you know, Mutual Aid Mondays. And every Monday they meet at 14th and Bannock. And it's grown so beautifully in the lat- in just the year that I've been here. but you know, they all come together, they provide food, they do a spa day, they just do a number of different things every Monday for our houseless neighbors. And it's just just a massive showing of love and compassion and solidarity. And part of what I think about is being, you know, in the academy, and I've sent Mutual Aid Monday, you know, finances, because, you know, we're sitting in the academy, lots of us have nice paychecks. (laughs) We have resources here, right? So we can be offering money to these organizations. We can be volunteering and showing up and just being in solidarity and serving food and sitting with our houseless neighbors and trying to figure out where, where else we can plug in. Um, the other piece that I think about when I think about connecting professionalized social work with mutual aid is, you know, again, I'm at a big fancy institution with computer labs, printers, um, space, right? And, and just for my own organizing work, I know how hard it is for organizers to find space. (laughs) It's expensive, right? And so what if we opened our doors? What if we made ourselves fully accessible to organizers and and community-based collectives to invite them in, use our resources, to print things, zines, posters, use our meeting spaces, right? So these are things I think we need to be thinking about where we kind of crush that hierarchy and just stand in solidarity with these groups and offer what we can. That's, I think, another big piece for me that I'm trying to think through.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so important. It also has this deep history in mutual aid and social work. Like I'm thinking particularly of the Black radical tradition in the 60s and the 70s, where they reappropriated the resources of the university for their own organizing and uplift, which is such a a useful way of thinking about how we can redistribute or reorganize resources for mutual uplift.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I I don't want to leave out that piece. and, And I want to name it explicitly about the like, political education that's needed, right? Because we can act in a way that's actually more in line with charity than solidarity of saying, Oh, we'll just we'll just offer these things to these nice people, right? As opposed to really engaging deeply with, well, what are they working for? And how does that act? How is that actually in service to building a better world for all of us, right? And building a, a deep political education that crosses all these lines and boundaries. Um, so I just, yeah, I definitely wanna name that, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right.
0: I think that's something so important to name and it goes with what we were speaking about earlier about how we can't like go into communities and say, I can do this, take it or leave it. It's more going into communities and being challenged as a researcher, as a social worker, as a professional, whatever it is, to re- to, to listen and to recognize where your skills may be used in service.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And before before I ask a closing question, I sort of want to go back in time a little bit to when you were sort of a practicing social worker in New Orleans, because you, you worked developing and directing uh, Louisiana's first jail diversion program. What was this? And then is this a model that can be used throughout the nations, or is this something specifically that came out of conversations and listening to the New Orleans community?
1: So before Hurricane Katrina in 2005, New Orleans did not have a fully functioning or fully funded public defense system. It was a pro bono system. So what happened was Hurricane Katrina, it brought so many things to the surface, right? It unearthed so many horrific things that were going on in that city structurally. And one of the things was the public defense system. And so there was a massive push after Katrina to say, we need a robust public defense system that's fully funded to care for all of the folks cycling in and out of the carceral system here. You know, from that kind of acknowledgement came also the idea of there was a um, the chief public defender for the state at the time Mentioned, not only do we need that, but I also want it to be a whole, what, what she was calling a holistic approach to public defense. And so this was, you know, 2007, 2008, and this was kind of an, a newer model. There were some models across the country. I think there was one in Kentucky, maybe one in Nashville. You know, it, the Bronx had a really big, robust one, but it wasn't a, a huge model yet. And so we were kind of doing this for the first time. It was a pilot project for the city of New Orleans, and it was housed in the New Orleans public defender system. So that's kind of how that came to be.
0: Interesting. So one of the things I wanna ask and this, this connects to sort of being subversive within organizations or within systems. And it stems from something Sarah Maya, who wrote about the public defender as an institution, presents this contradiction that the public defender on one hand is an agent of the state. And on the other hand, another agent of the state is the prosecutor. Both in theory work for the same people, um yet have completely contradicting roles so so when you were working within this program how did you build allies within state agencies how did you ensure that that these agencies goals or your allies goals were aligned with the goals of the community
1: yeah i mean it was it was very hard because for many many years as you can imagine the New Orleans community, just I feel like at all communities, right, particularly communities of color, the way that they view the legal system is is vastly different from white folks. But I think in New Orleans, there was a real anger and resentment for the way that there, it was so difficult to find legal counsel. And so when this new office came in, it, it became predominantly white. I was part of that new structure, right? It was someone from coming from a northern state down to Louisiana, in this job, fully recognizing the complexity there and doing my best to navigate that and show that I was a listener and, and was there to just offer what I could. But there was deep resentment and anger around what this office might be, how it would function, who it would center, um, and if they would actually be really in service to the community. And so we did a lot of things like you know block parties, trying to, you know, get ourselves out in the community, listen to folks, hear, hear how things had been prior, and work through that. And a lot of it was obviously, as you can imagine, very messy. But I think one of the main things I learned in that position, you know, and it was hard, because it was kind of like one of the bigger jobs I've had when I was a younger social change worker. But it was that, while I would never do that job in a prosecutor's office, right, I felt relatively comfortable doing it in a PD's office. But I learned very quickly. And I didn't know that I didn't name it as such, but I was absolutely subversive, right? And, you know, building, trying to get out into the community and understand what are the what are the agencies that we can really trust and won't report, won't pull a trigger if somebody didn't show up for a meeting? Who will actually call us first? And we can, we can then problem solve with them. I learned quickly and with my colleague, who were the folks that were in alignment with our values? Who treated our, you know, the defendants in a way that we thought was was righteous and the way that they should be treated. And then also like doing subversive things like, you know, judges wanting to know immediately if somebody wasn't doing well in a program and me nodding my head, but me doing something very different behind the scenes, right? Like you don't need to know when things go right. Like let, we'll figure it out behind the scenes and we'll let you know what you need to know. And then realizing, like, what are you gonna do with me when you realize I've lied? You're not gonna, You're not gonna lock me up, right? Which is a privilege that I had. And just recognizing, that power and leverage that I did hold and using it whatever ways that I could prevent harm from happening to defendants. So yeah, it was a, it was a massive learning (laughs) moment for me in that job.
0: Yeah. What an amazing experience and what important lessons about learning to like wield privilege that you have, as well as learning um, that these systems are comprised of individuals um, who can be in alignment that we often think of Carceral state, public defenders, prosecution of the state, whatever it may be as these anonymous faceless systems, but they're made up of people who can be allies, be be in solidarity.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely.
0: So I, I wanna turn now to our closing question, which I ask to everyone in your chair. I mean, this conversation could go on. I've, it's It's been incredibly generative and learning about social work and social change work has produced many more questions but thinking now to today in the future, the final question, what gives you hope today?
1: I love that we end on this question. This is very Mariam Kaba-esque, and I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> Ho- hope is a discipline, right?
1: Yes, Alex, yes. Yeah, so what gives me hope? You know, it ebbs and flows, right? Like sometimes we're more filled with hope, hope than other days, and that's fine. That's natural. But on any given day, <laughs> at any given moment, there are so many movements and things happening across the globe, and I'm always trying to remind myself of that, right? There's deep care and love being provided to people in communities that have long been abandoned. There's new relationships being formed, new, new ways of relating to one another. I'm trying to remind myself every day that all I have to do is like just look around, pause, look around, bring what we have to offer. And if more of us keep doing that, there's just, there's like, there's nothing we can't do, right? Like if we, if we come together with love and imagination, we built all this horrible shit that's around us now and we can build something entirely different. We can build something new, right? This is the things around us are not immutable. We decided to build them and we can decide to do differently. So I think that, that that's what gives me hope.
0: Yeah, I think that's so beautiful that we've built this. We can unbuild it and imagine, build something new. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been such a delightful conversation.
1: Yes. Alex, thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. And yeah, look forward to future conversations.
0: Absolutely. Well, hopefully our listeners enjoy too and turn into our next episode and engage with us on Twitter.